Coming up this week, Nick sits down with ESPN Crick Info's Peter Delapena and our very own Nate Hayes to discuss the Americas qualifier for the next Men's T20 World Cup. But first, a thanks to our Emerging Cricket patrons. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Next up, Nick, Nate and Peter Delapena. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm your host Nick Skinner and this week, unfortunately, Tim and Bez's schedules didn't line up, but we've got not one, but two guest podcasters from America. We've got Emerging Cricket's USA correspondent, Nate Hayes. Welcome, Nate. Hey, thanks, Nick. And a returning friend of the pod, ESPN Crick Info's Peter Della Pena. Uh, I see you're parked outside of Five Guys, Peter. How's it going? Well, they've they've not run out of fries. That's mission <laughs> number one. Well, that's that's the most important thing. It, I I didn't know that was a possible thing that could happen, but I I discovered sadly in New Jersey the five guys there are different <laughs> than the five guys everywhere else in the world. But I can I can safely report that the five guys in Cypress, Texas, at the very least, they've got hot fresh fries. 20 minutes before closing, that they will not deny me my rightful <laughs> order of little fries. And well, they don't steal it, your driver's license. <laughs> and they don't steal my driver's license. Hurts, yeah. <laughs> there's Hurts and there's not exactly, well, there's Hurts. Not, you're not exactly guaranteed to get your driver's license back from Hurts, I've also discovered. <laughs> well, if, uh, if Five Guys, or indeed Hurts, wants to sponsor the show, uh, please get in touch. But uh, there, there's a lot going on uh, on the field in American cricket. But the main story at the moment is the America's qualifier, the regional final in the men's T20 World Cup qualifying pathway. Two slots available for the global qualifiers, which will be coming up uh, early next year, we believe. A seven-team tournament with Argentina, Bahamas, Belize, Bermuda, Canada, Panama and the USA. Pretty much as expected, Canada and the USA progressed. Bermuda, a little bit off the pace, and and all the rest of the teams uh, really struggled. Guys, where do we see this kind of shaking out in terms of... uh I know there was there was some drama on the field between the USA and Canada, but other than that, it was it was pretty much what you would have expected before the tournament. Well, there was drama between USA and Canada, and the, and the Peter can tell us there was even more drama between USA and uh, and Bermuda. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it it didn't seem it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of uh, love between those two teams. No Christmas cards will be exchanged. That's for <laughs> sure. Yeah, it was it was spicy on the field at the Sir Viv Richards Stadium between USA and Bermuda, and then there was a different kind of spice to the ending of the USA-Canada game at Coolidge, but it added some very, very interesting moments to a tournament that in the past sometimes has struggled for some excitement and some drama. I don't think we got anybody expected to have that kind of drama the way it unfolded, but (laughs) it was certainly entertaining. It was worth the price of admission, even though entry was free (laughs) with your COVID (laughs) vaccination. Yeah, well, you mentioned they're, they're being played at uh, the Saviv Richards and Coolidge Stadiums in Antigua. How are the venues? Because, you know, it's not often we get to see associate cricket being played on um, on actually good surfaces. Well, I also took a drive around to the old Antigua Recreation Ground, uh-huh. which 
looks a complete mess if people who are there can believe they actually still use it for club cricket on the island in between football soccer matches and i know it's got some history and some nostalgia and i know a lot of people were sad because of those reasons when the main cricket venue shifted from there to the Sir Viv Richard Stadium for the 2007 World Cup and ever since. But if you're not attached to the nostalgia and to the history of the place, I don't know why on earth you would want to go back to the ARG because the Sir Viv Richard Stadium is very, very state-of-the-art by cricket standards anyway. And it's a bit isolated. It's out of St. John's and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But if you can get transportation to get out there, it's a fantastic venue. And it's something that I'm sure a lot of the players who got to play there this week will be looking back on fondly. And it was just announced today or the day before that it's going to be the host for the final for the 2022 under 19 world cup. The very championship match is going to be held at the survey Richard stadium. So that's another indication of the esteem and the quality of the venue that it's held in. And it was a great opportunity for the players in the America's, whether Panama Belize all the way up to Bermuda, USA, Canada, to be able to get to play in the stadium and take part in the tournament this week. Coolidge is Coolidge is a nice ground, not built up in the same way that Sir Viv Richards Stadium is. It's not it's not a genuine stadium. It's more of a intermediate ground between I, I'd say it's kind of in a similar way to Church Street Park in some ways, where you've got some very, very scenic hills and kind of grassy banks where if you've got a picnic chair or you've got a a beach blanket whatever you can spread out and sit on the hills and they do have limited grandstand seating on one side of the ground where the media box is but generally speaking it's it's on three sides it's just got grass banks but it's a very nice venue and it's just a shame that the history of the venue is tied to a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we we heard a few Alan Stanford references in the commentary, which I, I thought was quite interesting. Uh, no no mention of the uh, the 100 plus year jail sentence and, and the Ponzi scheme. But uh, yes, uh, as you said, though, a uh, lot, of, lot of drama between the US uh, in their match. Uh, I think looking at the overall scheme of things, those three matchups, U.S. Bermuda, U.S. Canada, and Canada Bermuda. Those were the decisive matches in the qualifier, really, because the the standard after Bermuda really dropped off. So, uh, how how did it all play out between you know between those three and the USA? I remember a couple of years ago we chatted to you about their uh, 2019 Americas qualifier, which there were a string of D words. I think disaster, dismal, depressing, disappointing. Uh, debacle <laughs> debacle <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bad they went through undefeated here but you know how much better was their prep or you know was the team better or did they just get lucky because um that bermuda game you know there, there were a couple of moments where bermuda looked like they were in with a pretty good chance and then against canada which you know we, we can talk about the um <laughs> the last over madness in a minute but again it went to a super over, so they clearly weren't dominating. Do, do you think the USA were the best team here, or, or did they just get a bit lucky? On paper, they had the most talent, but there's some significant factors that really need to be examined in the context of this year compared to two years ago. First off, the draw. Bermuda was the last team to play, so they, in essence, drew the short straw. USA was able to play on day one and start off and get their feet wet against Panama and Belize, Whereas Bermuda didn't play the first day. They were the last team to arrive due to 
flight arrangements and logistical designs to get in and out of Antigua, which I can tell you from my own experience was not easy. It was not a straightforward process. So that was one thing that Bermuda had to battle with. But then once they got there again, they were the last team to play. And their first match, right off the bat, they get paired up with USA. So USA has come in already with two games to get their players on the field, get some experience, get some comfort, adjusting to the facilities, acclimatizing to the conditions. Bermuda didn't have that. And Bermuda did not have any warm-up games before the tournament either. So that was a significant issue. If you remember two years ago, USA and Bermuda played on the first day of the tournament. But you could argue that favored Bermuda and there was a disadvantage for USA because again, Bermuda's in home conditions. They were playing at grounds they're used to. They were coming out of a club season that everybody was in form, accustomed to the conditions and USA on the flip side, similar to what Bermuda experienced here. USA didn't have that. USA showed up in Bermuda, plays Bermuda right off the bat and they get ambushed and lose in the final over that first game and everything just nosedived from there. So it was kind of like a vice versa scenario compared to two years ago the way with what USA experienced compared to what Bermuda experienced. Secondly, also important, Ali Khan was injured two years ago. He got injured in one of the final training sessions before the tournament began. And it, statistically, you could say he didn't do anything eye-popping in Antigua, but just his presence. And if you watch the games, I don't know if it came through on the streams at all, but his presence, his aura, his attitude, and his skill – was infectious to everybody on the team and just having him there. I mean, he was the one who was kind of in the thick of things in the Bermuda match when all the (laughs) fracases were breaking out. And I never got a chance to write this, but I didn't mind what happened. If if you're looking at it from USA perspective or just a cricket perspective in general, I'm never somebody who's going to be blowing my chest out about, or, you know, blowing hot air about the spirit of cricket, this, the spirit of cricket, that blah, 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 blah. But People are going to say that about the way USA behaved in the Bermuda match specifically, whether it was Ali Khan or Xavier Marshall or anybody else. Guess what? That attitude, that grit, that fire, that toughness, that that in-your-face, literally, attitude that he had on the field, it changed the whole attitude of the entire team. They felt like they were a team that could walk around, you know, like the big rooster, walking around the big peacock spreading its feathers you know (laughs) and um like hey they've got something to be cocky about and they've got something to be arrogant about two years ago ollie khan's on the field that usa team was very timid they were very shy and bermuda on the field and canada on the field they were not afraid to push them around and usa was getting pushed around two years ago and they were getting bullied you know literally on the field they were getting sledged the Bermuda players and the Canada <laughs> players were sledging them nonstop. You could hear from the boundary, and there was no response. They didn't know what to say. Fast <laughs> well, forward th- two I years th- to Antigua, and Ali Khan and Xavier, Xavier Marshall running all the way from the boundary, from mid-off to get right into the face <laughs> of Alan Douglas Jr. Uh, you can say, oh, that's unsportsmanlike. Oh, that's not gentlemanly, this and that. Hey, that was the attitude that made USA into a winner this time around. If you want them to be shy and timid and, and be like two years ago and be a bunch of losers. Well, they can sit at home like a bunch of losers (laughs) and not go to the qualifier. They can be unsportsmanlike and ungentlemanly and all they, they no spirit of cricket. Guess what? They won. They're winners. (laughs) Would you, would you rather have a winner who is a bit arrogant and a bit cocky and maybe a bit over the top and maybe not playing in the spirit of cricket, but they're winning. Or do you want a bunch of losers 
And if you're a USA fan at home, I, I think I know which one I'd rather have if you're a USA fan. I don't know about everybody else, but hey, if this is what it takes for USA to win and this is the, the fire and the attitude, then bring it on. Well, as a neutral, I thought it was it was pretty entertaining. There was some um, <laughs> some pretty amusing uh, exchanges. Uh, I, I think someone labelled Ali Khan a slow medium bowler, which which uh, fired him up. Which I, again, it's it's great stuff, and that's a, that's just a top quality sledge from a batsman without a helmet. Um, how, how did you see it, Nate? Uh, were you happy to see them, uh, you know, winning ugly? Well, honestly, the way Trey Manders and uh, Delray Rollins were going, I, w- I was fine with it because <laughs> because <laughs> for, there was a while there where it didn't look like USA. I mean, it really looked bad. I mean, I, at, at that point in the game, it's just you, you feel like, oh, my gosh, th- here we go again. You know, that's what it feels like. It feels like here it is, 2019. They're, they're <laughs> about to get slaughtered here. I mean, you know, and, and so, you know, you want to see that fire, if you ask me. You, you definitely want to see people fired up for big wickets, and you want that to snowball in their favor. You, you want them to build on that and, and just kind of, like, take them out. I, I mean, Bermuda looked re- – USA is lucky to win six games at, that week. Honestly, obviously the Canada game was incredibly close, but that Bermuda game could have, they could have easily lost that game. One other thing to add on here. When I look at those guys and the way they behaved on the fields, again, whether you liked it or not, those guys behaved like they cared about playing and winning for USA. They looked like they wanted to play for USA. They wanted to represent USA. They were desperate to win. The guys I saw two years ago couldn't care less about playing for USA. They just looked disinterested. They didn't look like they really cared much about representing the country. These guys, however way they went about it, they looked Looked like they were burning with a deep desire to win, not for themselves, but to win for USA. Well, maybe, maybe they were just burning with a deep desire to rub it in the face of Bermuda. But um, you know, looking at the squad, it's pretty much you know a lot of the same names, and, and yet they played a lot better this year. What do you think was the big difference there? Ian Holland, Dutchy, <laughs> cricket superstar, <laughs> never has a sixty-five to seventy mile per hour medium pacer been so deadly in the history. <laughs> of American cricket. <laughs> yeah, never mind Ali Khan. Bring in your uh, Dibbly Dobblers. Well, he he's, also took a great catch. Well, that too, but he's going to inspire. For, yeah, forget everybody dreaming and aspiring to bowl 90 miles an hour with toe crushing New Yorkers like Ali Khan. Ian Holland just inspired a generation of 60 to 75 miles per hour. <laughs> Everybody's going to feel like they got a chance to play for USA now. I know that. <laughs> well, he looked he looked good in the warm up uh, when they when they got together for training in, in Morrisville. I, I I was able to go over and watch some of that. He looked like he was in very good form there with the ball, and so it was uh, it was nice to see that continue. And it just shows the changing nature of T20 cricket. You've got the first wave was all about getting bowlers who could bowl as fast as possible, and then very quickly it transitioned into leg spinners. And can you get a mystery spinner in your team to call? havoc and now more recent times you could argue there's been a subtle shift maybe the leg spinner is still dominating but you don't want to fill your team again with guys who are bowling 90 miles an hour or it's not as essential if you've got a guy who's got incredible variations you've seen it with australia in the big bash with somebody like aj ty you've seen it in other teams in international cricket and you don't you know <laughs> Mitchell Stark you go, all you got to do is look at the final Mitchell Stark go, goes for 60 runs in the final but you look at comparatively speaking the USA squad Ian Allen bowling 65 70 miles an hour <laughs> with back of the hand slower balls with off cutters with other sorts of variations that is the thing that wins matches from a medium pace perspective in T20 cricket and I remember talking to him on the boundary one point at one of his spells 
and I joked with him and I said the same thing. I said, oh, seeing you out there today, you're going to inspire a generation of from, you know, coast to coast of 65 to 70 mile hour boards. And he started laughing. He says, I think in my whole spell today, I bowled two balls at full pace. And he didn't need to bowl full pace. If he can keep everybody off balance with all the different variations and it is as successful as he was, why would you do anything different? And yeah, it was tremendously successful for him. It led to tremendous success for the USA as a team. And it wasn't just the fact that he got the wickets. It was when he got them. The key sequences almost... Every time in, in the first four games, I believe, he took a wicket within his first three or four balls. Not just in his first over, but within the first half of the over. And breaking partnerships and bowling maidens. I, I think he bowled the most maidens in the tournament up until Saad Ben Zafar <laughs> took <laughs> four maidens on the last day. But, you know, up until that point, Ian Holland was the leading maiden bowler in the tournament. And he just, he was building pre- pressure, dot balls after dot balls. It wasn't just the wickets. He was a great bowler to bowl in partnership with because you knew you could count on him to build pressure at one end and allow another bowler to try and attack from the other end. Well, Nate, you mentioned uh, you, you know, the USA could have easily lost either of those games. Just looking at the the team and the contributions coming, you know, pretty consistently up and down the order. As PDPs kind of you know mentioned, the whole team worked a lot better together as a side rather than you know as individuals. Even though most of the names are pretty much the same, do you think that the minor league cricket had a, an influence on that and in terms of preparation? Because obviously they were underprepared going into 2019 with you know, change of coach and, and whatnot, but they're, they're a lot more settled this time. So in terms of the preparation, you've followed the minor league quite a lot, Nate. How much do you think that played a part? I think it did play a part. I mean, looking at the selection, I think a lot of people were expecting certain certain performers in minor league to be selected in, in that team. And, um, you know, we could we could talk about that for a long time. But, you know, whether or not some of these players kind of earn their, their place in, to stay in the team through minor league, they at least got to see that some players are definitely nipping on their heels or even passing them right now. And I think that might have helped motivate some of the players. I mean, nothing, you know, instills fear in you, I guess, more than being selected anyways. (laughs) But yeah, I, I do think it did help help a lot. I mean, obviously, it's going to help having having a coast to coast domestic league like that that runs for for eight weeks in the regular season plus two playoffs. It's gonna it's gonna do nothing but help. And you know, like I said, we so we saw a lot of players whose names weren't really in the mix for selection who played incredibly well. That's got to put some heat on on their tails a little bit. Well, and, and not just that, but even the you know the names that were selected. You know, I think of Stephen Taylor who was in pretty good form here and and also played well in the. The Cricket World Cup League Two series uh, in Oman a month or two ago. Uh, whereas in 2019, he was he was desperately out of form and he you know, he'd been struggling for a long time. And so it seems like the minor league really helped play him into form. Um, uh, just looking across to Canada as well, and you, know, you you talked about guys who who did well in the minor league pushing their case. In, there are a lot of Canadians who did well in the minor league but weren't selected. Um, you know, Nikhil Dutta, Shmanta Wijayaratna, Nitish Kumar. Nicholas Curtin, Jeremy Gordon, uh, all missing, you know, arguably people who would who would be in the first choice side. Do you have any idea about what's going on with those guys? Because you know, my my theory was that they might be trying to wait out the qualification to to play as locals in the minor league. I don't know if that's how it works, or do you, do you have more information on that front, Nate? Well, I, I think. That's what a lot of people are assuming, and and, uh, and uh, the reason they're assuming that is because that's literally what the rules are for the for them to qualify to play on those teams in the slots that they're playing on. For example, uh, Michigan has two Canadian players on the team, Saad Bin Safar 
and Nicholas Curtin. And only one of those guys to, can be a, a wild card player, which means a player that doesn't have to be living here and, and on their way to hopefully playing on the national team or qualifying at least, whereas the other players have to be, have to be doing that. So, so, I mean, literally they, you know, that's the rule, but they were given, a, I believe they were given an exception because you know, they're Canadian and I think they wanted to keep some good faith there. Now that's where it'd be nice if these things were, were made a little more, pu- more public, then you wouldn't have this speculation going around for that reason. I don't think that had anything to do with them being left out. I don't think that was like the reason. And I know, for example, ever the big one, everyone was thinking about was Nitish Kumar. From what I've heard, he, he recently got a new job in Texas and he didn't have the leave to go. Imagine getting a new job in Texas and being Canadian and telling them that you need to go leave and play, play <laughs> cricket for the Canadian team. So I mean I can I can imagine that that's an obstacle that's a, that's something that associate players have to deal with as we all know. So what are your feelings on that Peter? <laughs> well, a couple of things to unpack there. There are a number of rules that were there in minor league Nate that I know you know about that weren't exactly enforced. I think there was also a rule about under 21 players and under 19 players not exactly strictly enforced and I'm not sure if it was a written or an unwritten rule but there may have been a rule about not picking 55 and 6 year old owners in your starting 11 too and <laughs> no that one wasn't exactly enforced at least that waited for the last week of the season when i mean i don't yeah. like it at all but it, i'm I, I don't like it one bit uh, but uh yeah at least it was teams that weren't like trying to make the playoffs the very last week of the season you know i i, so I didn't the- like that at all <laughs> So the fact that uh, there were multiple Canadians in certain teams that bended the rules, I, I think you're reading a little bit too much into it, Nick, to think that these guys are actually trying to qualify for USA. It's nothing like that as far as I know. And like Nate said, Natish Kumar got a new job and couldn't get time off. A couple of the other guys, from what I understand, similar positions that they couldn't get time off work. And you have to keep in mind, too, the USA team currently isn't in that position. A lot of their players are contracted. Mm. To what extent uh, is a little bit vague, but either they're full-time contracted or part-time contracted, or in the case of Ali Khan, he's making his money on the freelance T20 circuit. And, and if it's not conflicting, this scheduling was beneficial to USA from the standpoint that because the T20 World Cup was going on simultaneously in Dubai, there were no T20 franchise leagues that were going to conflict that would have pulled Ali Khan's availability into question. So he got to come and play in this when ordinarily he might not have. Ian Holland, similar circumstances, county cricket season is over he doesn't have to rush back to Australia for his home summer there. So he was able to come to Antigua before going back home to Australia. So there are a few things that are beneficial to USA from that circumstance in terms of the timing and the schedule in the tournament. Whereas Canada players, everybody knows how devastating it was in Namibia two years ago when they failed to get ODS status and they didn't get contracts or the contracts that were pending or on the table or offered went up in smoke. So these guys have had to now go back to full-time jobs to pay the bills from week to week, month to month. And if they can only get a certain amount of time of leave per year, then do they want to burn their annual leave on an America's qualifier where even a not full-strength Canada team theoretically should still be good enough to beat Panama, Belize, Argentina, and even Bermuda to take one of the two spots so then they can hold their annual leave back and use it potentially for the global qualifier next year or for the 50 over challenge league which also has world cup 50 world cup qualifications so there's some other factors at play that were part of canada's selection for the tournament but on the positive side for canada the fact that they were able to advance with the squad they picked with a mix of veterans like navneet dalawal and hamza Tariq, but also some of the youngsters who stepped up 
alongside, again, Saad Ben Zafar, a veteran, Dylan Haliger, a veteran, Cecil Perez, a veteran. But you had a youngster like Harsh Tucker, who had a fantastic tournament for Canada and stepped up in, in some big ways for them. You know, the absence of Nitish Kumar and Nikhil Dutta opens up an opportunity like it did for Harsh Tucker. And that's a great thing for Canadian cricket to show that they do have that depth when needed. Yeah, you mentioned Harsh Tucker. Um, the couple of the other guys who'd played Canada under-19s cricket who who made their mark, I'm thinking Rayan Patel, who played about a decade ago and, and then um, kind of dropped off the scene a bit. And he's sort of resurfaced in... Uh, he played a bit in the Everest Premier League and, and I think he played some minor league cricket as well. Um, and he had a great tournament at the top of the order. So that was encouraging that, uh, you know, he's finally seems to be doing something with his talent, whereas... Um, you know, he, he played a few games in the senior side sort of in, around the start of the 2010s, but didn't really go anywhere. And uh, Salman Nazar, the uh, the left arm finger spinner, similar thing. He played under-19s cricket, I think in 2011 maybe, and then had a couple of matches again around that time, but then didn't really uh, go on with it. So, yeah, interesting to see these guys kind of making a case. How did you see them as sort of, you know, they are maybe the second string, but do you think they'll be pushing on in terms of, uh, you know, maybe keeping out some of the senior guys when Canada does have a full-strength squad available? Not necessarily, but it is good to know that they've got options available. The classic cliche, it's a good headache to have. Salman Azar has, has been somebody who's been kind of floating around the edges for some time. I remember in 2016, he actually played a pivotal role in helping beat USA in the Audi Cup in Los Angeles. So he's had a few opportunities here and there with the senior team for Canada, but he's never really had a consistent long run in the side, if you will. But for whatever reason, if he got his opportunity because of unavailability for other players or if he was just deemed to be a better player at the time, he performed so he showed he's capable if called upon and again Harish Tucker and a guy like him stepping up he was impressive when I saw him a couple years ago in the Canada under 19s but unfortunately you see a lot of the USA players and a lot of the Canada players they just never get the opportunity to transition from under 19 to senior level and the fact that he has got an opportunity fairly early on after phasing out of under 19s is definitely a positive thing for Canada cricket and it wasn't just that he got opportunities against other teams. I mean, the, the spell he bowled against USA, I thought one of the big blunders of that USA-Canada game that nobody really talked about because it was so lost in the discussion about the final ball drama with Rusty Tron and Canada goofing up and celebrating too early. Harsh Hawker should have bowled four overs. Why didn't he bowl a fourth <laughs> over? It was just mind-blowing yeah. to me that he bowled as amazingly as he did in the power play and USA couldn't play spin. USA has never been able to play spin. And he <laughs> right, made right. them look silly against them with, with his off spin. And he, USA is really struggling. And then he doesn't bowl his four overs. I couldn't, you know, that was a huge. Yeah, that, uh, that surprised me too. That surprised me too. I mean, he was looking like the best bowler. That, well, Salman Nazar was, was, was fantastic in his inclusion in the game. You know, another, le- it's always a good idea to put a left arm orthodox spinner in against USA, if you ask me. But, I mean, the fact that they didn't play Janaid Siddiqui kind of showed they, they had some depth there. But, yeah, I thought Docker should have definitely got more, gotten his fourth over that game. Like, that's a, that was a huge blunder. I agree with you. Well, speaking of blunders, uh, we can't look past the, uh, <laughs> the the last over, last ball madness in that game, needing three to win, two to tie off the last ball. Somehow, poor old Hamza Tariq 
<laughs> the the Americans, Rusty Teron and Ali Khan, ran ran a bye and then you know ran back for the second after Hamza had taken the stumps off and then charged off to celebrate with the rest of the Canadian team. And the Canadians didn't notice that they were still running. I, I just... I, how does that happen and you know did you talk to anyone about it after the game pdp like what 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 was the feeling i just can't imagine being in a team and just seeing that happen and then (laughs) thinking you've won and then seeing the other guys still running and then you go to a super over and get smashed Mm. well there's a couple (laughs) parts of this story so i had positioned myself at the start of the over i was in front of the canadian bench with 14 needed to win i thought all right canada's going to be favorites so i started off the over in front of the canada bench thinking canada's going to win this game and i want to get the canada players running at my lens <laughs> well then they start off with two with two wides and i think all right what's going on here and then <laughs> then there's a wicket but i just thought all right something something's not right here with these wides and <laughs> and i think that it, it just looks like things are tilting towards, towards usa so then by the third or fourth ball i i switched over to get in front of the usa bench and I got Kareem Agor hitting a six over my head at long on. All right, so now it brings that down to three off two balls. And I think, all right, I'm going to stay here. I'm in front of the USA bench. Kareem Agor is going to run <laughs> off towards me after he hits the winning runs. Well, then he gets that LBW next ball. So now I'm thinking like, oh, geez, should I stay here? Should I go over to the <laughs> bench? Ali Khan's coming out. I decide, all right, I'll stay in front of the U.S. bench. And I'm standing there in front of the U.S. bench. And Jack, Jay Arun Kumar, the USA head coach, he shouts – People who were watching at home from the stream wouldn't wouldn't have known this or gotten a chance to hear this or witness this. Jay Arun Kumar, the head coach for USA, shouts to Rusty Tron, Rusty, no matter what happens, you have to run two off this final ball. Whatever happens, you are <laughs> running two. And sure enough, no matter what happened, Rusty Tron ran two. Now, I think J- uh, Jack shouted that at Rusty, assuming that Ali Khan, being the striker, was also going to run two no matter what happened. Unfortunately... Oh, Khan, his head was off of the clouds somewhere after swinging and missing. So the, the lesson learned from this is you have to shout run two no matter what to both batsmen because the striker, you can't assume he's going to run two. That was not a given or a guarantee <laughs> we learned. But, you know, swinging and miss, Rusty bolts. He's ready to run two no matter what happens. Sure enough, he, he gets across the line for the first run. And looking at the replay, I have to be honest, I don't know what Hamza Tariq was was thinking Hamza Tariq. No one when you look at the replay, <laughs> it looked pretty clear on the replay that Rusty Tron made the ground, and it was it was not. And even if it was you know an inch in it here or there, it was that close. I don't know how you could throw the ball away and start celebrating without looking at the square leg umpire. But on the replay, it looks pretty clear Rusty Tron made the ground. Hamza runs off celebrating. Rusty is you know coming back for the second. Ali Khan has got his head in the clouds somewhere. Doesn't realize that it's on. There's a couple things here. You got everybody's given Rusty Tron credit in the U.S. here in Texas at the Nationals, and even in the moment after it happened, everybody said Rusty Tron was the savior for USA. Deserves a lot of credit. What's lost in that moment, and I think this has not really been uh, appreciated by the Canadian players who feel felt like they got screwed over and that they wouldn't shut up about it and were whining about it at the team hotel nonstop <laughs> afterwards, days after, was that. Hamza threw the ball at the umpire at a Canadian umpire. And the Canadian umpire, Harry Graywall, treated the ball as live correctly. And Leslie Reefer Jr. had given it not at its square leg. So Harry Graywell is the standing umpire. He never hesitated to treat the ball <laughs> as still live. He sure okay, did. So he got right out of the way. Yeah, and he got out. He steps out of the way. He's treating it as live. He didn't go to pick it up, which I don't think people have given enough credit to both umpires because it would have been very easy for him to bend over and pick up the ball, a dead ball game over, because he's touched it now and he interfered with it. He did not do that. Uh, and so anybody who's from Canada who's complaining, oh, they got screwed over. Well, if, you want, if you're if you going to blame on any, 
but you, you can't blame bias on the umpires because it was a Canadian <laughs> umpire who was standing there. So you can't claim they were in they, they were in the bag for the USA. It was a Canadian umpire who ruled against Canada because it was the right decision. The ball was still alive. The laws clearly state both batsmen have to stop running. As long as Rusty was still running, even if Ali Khan was not running, as long as Rusty Tehran is still running, the ball is still alive. So Rusty's running. Ali Khan's got his head in the clouds. They finally react, come back for the second. And all this chaos is, is happening. The Rusty's in an argument with the Canadian players. Ollie starts running off. The USA bench is shouting at Rusty. Rusty, get off the field. Rusty, don't talk to them. Get away from them. Come off the field. Don't get into any <laughs> arguments. The game's tied. Don't try and talk to them. Game is tied. Don't no conversations. Get off. Get off. We're playing for the Super Bowl. <laughs> so Rusty's, you know, Rusty's trying to play peacemaker. The Canadian guys are angry and all this stuff is going on. Rusty comes off the field. Ali Khan comes off the field. I'm still in front of the USA bench shooting photos. And there's all this chaos still because it seems pretty obvious there's going to be a Super Bowl. The game is tied. There's there's no dispute about whether the runs were legal. It seems pretty clear to most people that the runs counted and the game should be tied. Are we going to have a Super Bowl because the light was fading really badly at that point? Where are they going to turn the stadium lights on? So then <laughs> Rusty comes over. And I, again, I'm in front of the bench. He takes his helmet off and he asks me and Saurav Netravalkar, the current ODI captain, former T20 captain. He comes up to me. They both come up to me and they say, Peter, what did you see? Should the runs have counted? Was the ball alive? And I said to Rusty, of course the runs counted. Of course the ball was still alive. And the only reason why we're still standing here instead of the game being finished is because you didn't run three. Why did you stop <laughs> running? You should have run three. Why did you and Holly stop? If USA loses this game, it's your fault because you should have run three. Why did you stop running? <laughs> there, there was a third run there for sure. Yeah, there was three there. Why didn't they? Why did they stop? Wait, wait, he he started running and then he stopped. Yeah. Well, if, if well, I, technically you got to blame Ali Khan because Ali Khan was the one who really wasn't running the whole time. Rusty Rusty tried to run three. Yeah, Rusty. Rusty tried really was looking for three. Ali Khan because he started that second run so so late. The third was not possible because of him. But if they had ran the hard the whole time, there were three runs there. There were definitely three runs there. And it was their fault. If USA lost that game, it was their fault for not running three. And so I said that to them, and like they both cracked a smile, like a light moment in the in the middle of the chaos. But um, yeah, the, what was left in doubt was were they going to turn the lights on? And ICC America's budget as as plenty of extra spare change lying around to, to pay for the lights <laughs> to be switched on, which is good to know. And uh, you had the Super over, and as soon as. They got the 22 runs. Ali Khan was like, again, he was in boss mode. It was like straight out of the Bermuda game. Just that big swagger that he's like, give me the ball. Screw it. We're winning this game. Nobody's scoring 22 off me. Get out of my way. And, um, <laughs> you know, sure enough, he, he had plenty to defend defended it easily. So it was, but there were so many things happening on the ground. It's a shame that people weren't allowed in the ground and, and there wasn't a more sophisticated kind of, production setup to allow for some of the bench audio and some of the other audio on the ground that people unfortunately didn't get to hear but it was it was quite an extraordinary scene to be able to witness and experience on the ground on the boundary yeah i'm glad you recounted that peter because i i just was not able to get through the video i was just getting so frustrated (laughs) and just what are you doing Please stop! Like it just that whole over. Was yeah, the whole over. <laughs> the the last ball gets a lot of credit, but I mean it gets all the attention. But there were so many mistakes in that that over. I know in in my own team's group that video was being shared, and they were like, "Oh, this looks like a t- the ending to a TCL game." And I was like, "No." <laughs> and I said, "The thing that separates it is the umpire got out of the way of the ball. That's like the the biggest thing that separated it was the umpire knew the ball was live." You know? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and then and then the super over. Yeah, it's pretty handy to have Ali Khan up your sleeve when you when you've got a super over. <laughs> um, but 
Moving to the third team, which uh, was in with a realistic shot of qualifying, and Bermuda, yeah, they're a bit underwhelming. They lost pretty heavily to Canada, and they fell away badly against the USA from a, a winning position, and yeah, even Argentina pushed them to a last-over finish. Uh, what did you make of Leverock's captaincy? It looked like he had a pretty quiet time with the bat, um, and his bowling was kind of variable, although he was he was quite decent in the USA game. Peter, do you think captaincy suits Kamal Leverock? Because temperamentally, I, I was a bit surprised that they gave it to him. Well, I think his reputation from his youth maybe unfairly has painted a long-term portrait of his demeanor and his attitude, which I have personally observed. He's a much, much different person than he was from his, his teenage days when he ruffled a few feathers locally in the Bermuda setup. In my opinion, I think he was a fine choice to be captain, and I thought he led well. That scorecard from the Canada game is very, very deceiving. And even the U.S. game, I mean, USA won that game in the power play. The first six overs with Steven Taylor and Monarch Patel, that's what won USA the game. Because once he came on and reeled things in, then Bermuda started to pull them back with the ball. And really, USA had, a, I thought, a subpar total. They really goofed up the last four or five overs from the platform that they had. And like Nate was saying before, when Trey Manders and Delbert Rollins were at the crease, there was a sequence there for a three or four-hour stretch around the – 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th overs where Rollins was just smashing fours and sixes at will. And he really miscalculated going hard in the wrong over against Nisark Patel because he was trying to hit with the spin to Nisark, but he was hitting into the wind. And again, this is something that I don't know if it translated on the stream or not, but there was a strong cross breeze at the Viv Richards ground. And when Delroy Rollins got out, he was slogging into the wind and he really miscalculated there. And if he had just been patient and picked his overs more strategically in terms of just calculating the percentages of when to hit with the wind, when to go against the wind, where to try and pick your boundaries. He had hit a boundary in that over earlier, slogging over the wicket, but he, he slogged flat, slogged along the ground and picked a gap in the boundary. When he got out, he tried to hit into the air and Steven Taylor was on the boundary deep square leg just for that shot. And it just hung up in the air in the wind. He didn't time it well, but it was also he was hitting into the wind. That was the issue. But Bermuda should have won that game, if, if we're being honest. I thought USA had a subpar total, and when Rollins was at the crease, like Nate said, they were in a dominant position. And if they, he hadn't taken that unnecessary risk trying to slog into the wind, there's a pretty good chance Bermuda would have chased that total. And then when you look at the Canada game, I think that Canada game is very, very deceiving because there were sequences in that game where Bermuda were really on top, especially in the first innings. Yeah, first sort of 10, 15 overs, yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan Patan had gotten the, the half century, but when he got run out, when he got run out by Saad Zuffer, and then Saad got out a couple of balls later, <laughs> the two of them were sitting as far apart from each other as possible in the Canadian dugout. They were not going <laughs> anywhere near each other. The, the attitude and the atmosphere in the Canada dugout was not a confident place at that point in time, and it was like, oh, my God, have, have we just thrown away the game with that run out? And then a couple more wickets fell, and the energy in the ground was pointing towards Bermuda holding Canada to 140 to 150, really tying them down in the last six, seven overs. And then... Hamza Tariq, yeah. Yeah, he played one of the finest knocks I've seen at oh, a level in a qualifying scenario. Just the sweeps he played to start off. And and again, if you compare that to what happened with Delray Rollins, Hamza played a very calculated innings in terms of playing the percentages with the conditions. So when he swept... And swept along the ground, he was sweeping into the wind, but he was keeping it along the ground. And when he wanted to 
to take risks and go big in the air. Anytime he hit in the air, he was hitting with the wind at his back. So he played the smart risks and he played the smart percentages. If he's going to hit in the air, he's going to hit with the wind. If he's going to go hard and try and hit boundaries against the wind, he's going to keep the ball on the ground. And before you know it, he's 63 not out of 28 balls. And that that was the difference. Can't uh, Bermuda was a bowler short in that game. I thought if there's one thing that Bongi Levrock, I disagreed with, Canada, similar to us, they were struggling against spin. The ball was turning significantly. Delray Rollins was turning the ball square on that wicket, and I could not understand why Rodney Trott was not used as another spin bowling option along with Alan Douglas Jr. and Delray Rollins. Rodney Trott, I don't know if he bowled a single over in that game, and I'm not sure why because he was on the field. And instead they went to medium pace, and that third medium pace option uh, Zico Burgess, I think it was. Yeah, he got smashed. And that all of a sudden momentum flipped upside down back towards Canada, and that was the game. Um, and then Bermuda's chase, the power play, they just they just looked completely uninspired and flat, and they were never really in the chase. But you, you rewind an hour and a half at the 12 over mark, it looked like Bermuda was going to, at the very least, be extremely competitive and set up a chaseable total, and then Tom Zatarek was was just um, remarkable. Yeah, it was it was a it was a massive relief to see them get over the line with with that one. Uh, yeah, just looking at the Bermuda side of things, I just you mentioned they were you know a bowler short in that game. They're sort of a bowler short and a batter short, aren't they? You know, there's there's a couple of guys. Obviously, there's Bongi and, and Rawlins. Uh, Trey Manders was quite good at the top with the bat. But they don't have a whole lot other than those three. And then with the bowling as well, there's, there's a couple of guys who can get through maybe sort of three, three and a half good overs, but they don't quite have that extra guy. So, I mean, it's an island with 60,000 people on it. Is there any way that you see them getting any better or, or is this kind of pretty much where their level's peaking? Well, I think they picked guys who were in form or who they felt were in form. I mean, there was there was nothing in terms of picking guys necessarily on a reputation per se, because if you think back two years ago, you know, one of the heroes in that event against USA in Bermuda was Deontay Darrell. He's the one who, who smashed Hayden Walsh Jr. with a couple of sixes to get Bermuda to clinch the spot in the World Cup qualifier. He wasn't in the squad on this tour. So they picked who they thought were the best guys currently who could get them there. I think, again, the conditions were a significant factor. If you remember also two years ago in that event in Bermuda, on the wicket they played on for most of the tournament in Sandy's Parish, I think White Hill is the name of the ground, that wicket was a bit sticky at times, and it was not always easy for batting. And one of the most devastating bowlers in that tournament for Bermuda, especially against the USA, was Onias Bascom. And just his kind of slow, medium pace, he was bowling kind of Ian Holland style, just cutters, uh, variations, and on the, this kind of, at times, a sticky wicket, depending on who won the toss. He was a handful. USA could not score off him. They were struggling badly against him, even on short boundaries. Onias Bascom hardly got a bowl this week, Antigua, because the wickets were flat. They were ultra-conducive to batting on most occasions. There, there were a few sequences where the wicket was a bit sticky in the morning, but generally speaking... If you played in the afternoon games, the wicket was flat at both venues, and especially at the stadium. The wicket was incredibly flat at Sir Richard Stadium. Anais Baskin was a four-over bowler two years ago against USA and Bermuda, and he was devastating. Arguably, one of the reasons why 
Bermuda may have lost the game against USA in, in the Viv Richard Stadium was the solitary over that was given to Onias Bascom because his medium pace and his style of bowling on that flat wicket was incredibly innocuous. And I think USA took 16 or 17 runs off the only over he bowled, which was a miscalculation. And if that had gone to a spinner instead, you know, and that, that turns into a six run over, you know, six singles instead of a couple of boundaries in the over. That's a crucial over. And uh, again, you know, they turned to Zico Burgess in the Canada game because Onias Bascom was not somebody they could rely on for four overs. So the conditions played a factor in Bermuda's performance as well as some of the team selections. But I think everything needed to go right for them in this event in Antigua. Like I said, they drew the short straw having to play USA on day one and then basically Canada as their third match, I believe it was. You know, they ended the tournament playing three of their easier games at the end of the tournament. Canada and USA both had the advantage of playing a couple easy games, like I said, to get settled. Bermuda did not have that advantage. So they got a short straw on the scheduling. They got a short straw on the arrival, not really having much time in terms of acclimatization in Antigua. And then just the conditions at the venues, unlike Bermuda, where they had the home advantage, home conditions, home knowledge of the venues, home knowledge of the wickets. They didn't have that advantage in Antigua, and all those things factored into their reversal in fortunes in this event. Yeah, that's a good point as well in, in terms of um, at this level, a few things going slightly different can make all the difference, um, especially against teams that are you know at a very similar level of quality or, or maybe a bit higher. Um, I guess looking at some of the other teams quickly, you know, how do we see the rest of the competition? Um, the Bahamas were okay. Uh, Mark Taylor, uh, not the air conditioning salesman from Australia, but uh, Mark Taylor was quite good. Um, Hernan Fennel from Argentina, I think, picked up the most wickets in the tournament. Uh, you know, Belize had their moments. Even Panama had their moments. Do you think any of these teams look likely to start challenging in the next few years, or, or is it going to just be you know Canada, Bermuda, USA for the foreseeable future? Well, it's been Canada, Bermuda, USA for a decade plus now in T20 cricket anyway, so I don't see that changing anytime soon. Of the teams, I mean, Argentina had fallen back significantly over the last several years from where they were, and everybody knows that story, at least in the associate scene. And I thought they had improved significantly. One of the last times I had seen them in person, Argentina was an old aging side with guys hanging on well past their use by date in their late thirties and early forties. And this side looked much more energetic, much more youthful. They looked arguably, you could say they were the top fielding side. As far as I was concerned, the games I watched, not just their energy, but their throwing accuracy in the ring, hitting the stumps, their catching prowess. I mean, Tomas Rossi took the catch of the tournament yeah. in my eyes. I know Ian Holland took a good one in the one of the early USA games on day one, but Tomas Rossi took an incredible one-handed catch right in front of me. I was literally 15 feet away when it happened on the one of the square boundaries at the Survey Richard Stadium, and I didn't think he was going to get to the ball. And not only that was amazing. One-handed catch for people who, who haven't gotten a chance to see it. If you can find a clip of it, he just sprints. He ran a good 30, 35 yards to his left and then reaches up with his left hand, which is his weak hand. He's a right arm medium pacer. So he reaches up with his weak hand, his offhand, his left hand, and just stabs this ball out of the air about three yards inside the rope. This incredible going catch. Full speed, too. He was going, yeah. I mean, he was he was hauling. That was an amazing catch. Full tilt. And that was emblematic of their fielding effort throughout the week. They were phenomenal in the fields. 
And the only thing that's really holding them back is a bit more batting depth and a bit more experience against higher class bowling. I thought their bowling was very competitive. I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard to gauge because they didn't bowl full 20 overs against USA. And how do you compare the 20 overs they bowled against a team like Bahamas or some of the other teams compared to how they trade against USA or Canada, Bermuda. But, you know, like you said, they stretched Bermuda to the final over. I thought if they had two more batters and they really goofed up the chase against Bahamas, how did they goof up the chase against Bahamas? Because once they lost the second or third wicket, they, they couldn't get anybody to rotate the strike. And and that's what, what killed them that game when they had a set batter who was past 50. He was off strike for much of the second half of that innings. They just couldn't get singles to get him on strike. And so just the basics... Forget about boundaries. You're not you're not asking somebody on Argentina to be smashing sixes every other ball, but they just struggled at times to do the fundamentals of turning over the strike and getting your your set batter on to be able to do the bulk of the heavy lifting. That's what held Argentina back. But of of the teams outside the the top three of Bermuda, USA, Canada, I actually thought Argentina was head and shoulders the next best team. And if they can get, I mean, everybody knows again in the associate community. They've got a very small playing pool to pick from. They've just got eight or ten clubs in Argentina. That's their whole national cricket system. They might have 350 or 400 senior adult players to pick from compared to 20, 30, 40, 50,000 adult amateur players in the USA or in Canada. So for Argentina to be as competitive as they were with such a small talent pool to pick from, in my opinion, it's impressive. And if they can just... Get a few more guys. I mean, well, Taro Musiani went to university in England. I'm not sure if a couple of the other guys have gotten a chance to go play overseas for some time, but that's the kind of thing that's going to be necessary for them to bridge the gap. Well, at the end of the day, it was Canada and the USA who qualified. Uh, USA undefeated throughout the tournament. Uh, They're both through to the global qualifiers for next year's men's T20 World Cup.